In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning we're kicking off a four-week journey through stewardship, which we'll do through the book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth is a rather unlikely candidate as a front-runner in a look at stewardship, but in many ways, hopefully as we walk through it together in the weeks to come, we'll see some parallels both to our own time and um, some questions it raises for us to wrestle with as we are all called to walk faithfully with our Lord, being stewards or managers of the time and the talent and the treasure that He gives us in this life. Um, that book on the screens, hopefully you picked up last Sunday at a table on the back or will we'll get or have gotten in the mail. If you don't have one yet, check that table in the back. Some of them have uh, stickers with your names on them. Um, for others that we didn't have contact information for, there's some loose copies, so grab one before you go. Um, it's just a way to have a little devotional resource for you to use at home throughout the course of this month as we kind of ground ourselves in these lessons together. But this morning, let's dive right into it. There at the beginning of Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. If you follow along in your Bible or on the screens, you'll find it there. It opens with these words, as you heard, in the days when the judges ruled. Those opening words serve as a timestamp to let us know what's going on in this season biblically. In fact, if you have your Bibles with you. I've got it on the screens if you don't. Um, if you turn back one page, this is where the book of Judges ends, right before this book begins. Judges 21-25, we read, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Haunting words, right? Um, this is right before God gives the nation of Israel, a king which they asked him repeatedly for, for um, someone to govern them like the nations around them. And yet, instead of seeing God as their king of kings and looking to him to govern and guide them, they all become kings and queens in their own eyes and govern and rule as each and every one sees fit. But to make matters worse, that's not the only thing going on. That would be enough for one nation unto itself, but we read in the latter part of verse 1 that there's also a famine in the land. And this people, Elimelech and his family, discover that Bethlehem, which in Hebrew means house of bread, ironically, has come up short of its name. And so they have to sojourn to Moab. Be hard enough to go to a neighboring country to find basic necessities, but the land of Moab was no just regular country. It was the land of their enemies as well. So, you know, it'd be as if Texas ran out of resources and we all had to move up to Oklahoma. I'm just <laughs> kidding. On the heels of the Red River showdown a week or two ago. More likely, if we were going to put it akin, we'd think of any nation we've been at war with, which in these days is divided by oceans, but if they literally were that close and we all had to flee there for refuge, that might give us a sense of what that looks like. The point is it made an even harder circumstance that much harder because they had to go to the very land of their enemies to find what was needed. But it gets even worse. 
Once they arrive in the land, we see the head of the household, Elimelech, dies. And there's a little bright spot for almost a decade as the sons take wives from the land. But even that has complications as you're wrapping up your study in Ezra. It transgresses God's call to not intermarry because of the snare it would give them with the gods of the nations around them. But at least for this moment, almost 10 years, they have a little respite. They're in a place where they can find what they need. They have a bit of traction in some stability, but then it gets worse still as even the sons die. And all that is left at the end of those opening five verses is Naomi with her two daughters-in-law. And in her grief, we see in verses 6 to 9, Naomi even sends both of those daughters-in-law away, or she tries to. Now, why is that? She knows that she'll be taken care of when she goes back to Bethlehem as a widow. But it's no life that anyone would choose for themselves. Um, It's just a meager existence. They have pity on her according to the law. But she encourages her daughters-in-law to go and thrive. They've not yet had children, and thus remarry and prosper in the land. We discover after a little bit of debate that they acquiesce, or at least Orpah does, but Ruth clings to Naomi. In those opening 14 verses, we have this by recount, right? Radical individualism, national apostasy, supply shortages, refugees, death, grief, loss, frustration, and isolation. It's not the headlines from last week's news, But it could be. It's the opening 14 verses of the book of Ruth. It seems as though when circumstances beyond Ruth's control go from bad to worse to seemingly rock bottom, and then the bottom itself just drops out, it confronts us in this text with a question that may be something for us to ponder um, as we move forward together. And the question that I think it raises for us is this, kind of, to use the biblical phrase, when mud hits the fan, um, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Do we draw near to the Lord or do we draw back? Now, that may seem like an odd question, but a lot of times when we hit moments of stress or crisis, we lean in ever more into our faith. But when the moments of crisis don't go away, when they endure, when hard goes to harder and worse goes to worse still, when rock bottom has the bottom drop out, we're kind of confronted with what do we do then? And what, how do we square up amidst that? Will we draw in all the more or will we draw back in our frustration, fatigue, and even our crisis of faith at times? Now, you may rightly be wondering, what does any of this have to do with the topic of stewardship? But I assure you, it has everything to do with it. Because when we get to the hard moments, as well as the easy ones, we're called to look at what we do there. What do we do as stewards of the time that God has given us in our relationship to Him? What do we do with the talents and the abilities that He's entrusted to us in this life? What do we do with the resources that He's given us as well, which are tested in these seasons and our response from these seasons are often vital to our own soul's health, but also to that of others, as we'll see in just a moment. 
And I can tell you that in those moments when it's been hardest in my life and ministry, when I've thought about throwing in the towel, which I have several times, when the hill gets so big that it seems insurmountable, when the challenges are too great, the stress is too monumental, in those moments when I press in all the more, which, as an aside, I've not always done well. But when I do, God forms and actually forges something in me far greater than I could ever imagine. But it's not easy. Martin Luther put it this way, I have so much to do that I shall first spend the first three hours in prayer. When it seems as though we've got no time to give, there's nothing left to carve out in our day, could we afford not to spend time with the Lord in those seasons? When it seems impossible to offer our spiritual gifts or even just wheeling hands and feet among all the other obligations, amongst all that is calling upon us, um, when we make that choice in some small way, often it's there that God is working on us, informing in us something far greater. And when we remain faithful to our tithe, even in times of uncertainty, it's there that God is keeping us oriented. And I can attest to you and look you in the eye and say that even in the hardest of seasons for our family, we've never lacked. God has always been faithful. Because as we learn to lead life, as God orients it for us, around his purposes and plans, we discover a rhythm of life and a peace even in the midst of the uncertainty that keeps us pressing onward. And it's also in these moments that God isn't just forging something in me or in you, but he's forging in something for all of us as part of his greater work, one we may never see in our lifetimes, Sometimes we catch glimpses of the effects, but by God's grace, we have records of it in the pages of Scripture. And if you'll turn back with me to verse 15, I think we discover one such example therein. After Naomi has pleaded to her daughters-in-law to return to their peoples, and Orpah departs, Ruth clings to her, and so Naomi takes up her discourse one last time, tries to push Ruth away, to dissuade her from going back to Bethlehem with her. But look at this amazing response of Ruth in verses 16 and 17. She's determined not to leave Naomi, not just out of her love for Naomi, but she said she'll make Naomi's people her people, and furthermore, she'll convert to Naomi's God. So she's turning from her people, her place, and her pagan gods to embrace this way of life and this people um, who have sojourned among her in Naomi and her family. Now, we're not told much in the plain text here about the relationship of the household of Elimelech with the daughters-in-law and the sons, but I think verses 16 and 17 tell us all we could ever need to know. In spite of all that Naomi has faced, Naomi remains faithful to God. Now, you may wonder, how can I make such a statement? Well, I think verses 16 and 17 give us all the proof we need. If Ruth is willing to leave her people and her place to pursue a people and a place and a God that is foreign to her, 
when she has nothing left to gain from doing that and no urgency to leave, that's a testimony about Naomi's faithfulness, perhaps more than anything else. I believe this tells us that Naomi walked the walk. She didn't just kind of go through the motions, perhaps, that even in her frustrations and pain, she lived out her faith. She spoke it. She walked it out. She modeled it in a way that must have been so attractive to these two women. Having seen it, Ruth could not bear to draw away from it. It was a kind of faithfulness that was so enduring that in spite of all that Naomi faced, Ruth was willing to bet her life on this God of Naomi. And that's truly remarkable if we pause and think about it. You see, I think this is what is so vital to us when we look at the stewardship of our lives. Because God could care less, if I can put it that bluntly, about my pocketbook or yours. He's going to do it without us. Um, he really is not all that concerned that we must give him our prayers and our praise like some cosmic Santa that needs to be powered up to do what he does. He isn't um, needing our abilities, natural or spiritual otherwise, to advance his kingdom or do what he plans to do. No, God cares about your heart and your soul's health. But more than that, he cares about the heart of each and every soul that he has formed and fashioned on the face of this earth. And that our faithfulness in walking with him would reveal a faithfulness to them as we steward our lives accordingly, both in the rough times and in the benign times, so that we may persevere nonetheless. That it might be a witness in the way that we live, in the words that we speak, and how we act to show them that this God we say we follow, this Jesus we proclaim as Lord weekly, that we serve as one that we cling to truly in the good times and in the bad. I think there perhaps is something for us to dwell on. When mud hits the fan, first we must ask ourselves, what of us will we draw near or draw back? And then our faithfulness will lead to fruitfulness. It always will. Because God is God. That's who he is, not on our account, but on account of who he is. We may never see it, this side of the veil, but I promise you that. And as we look at our lives, we must ask ourselves, would our lives, like Naomi's, model to others something that would leave them saying, I want that God to be my God because of the way that I see them live it out even in the hard times, even in the difficult times. There's something so abiding. Those people, those Christians, I want to be a part of them. Sure, they're not perfect. No one is. But there's something so abiding and grounding in them that I want to be a part of those people. My prayer is that that will be our testimony. That is who we'll be known for. But how we order our days, how we order our resources, how we order um, our talents and our abilities will speak volumes to that. Our faithfulness will lead to fruitfulness as our children and our grandchildren, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers see it lived out. So I think the question as we think about this is, where can I, where can you grow in your faithfulness to the Lord? This opening scene, as tragic as it is in opening of Ruth, begins to turn a corner right at the end of chapter 1 as they come back to Bethlehem and the harvest is upon them. We'll pick up there next week. But in many ways, it kind of leaves us with a cliffhanger 
as we have to wrestle down in this case study of Ruth and Naomi, what of us? What will we do? How will we live? When mud hits the fan, when trials drag on, and it doesn't seem to get better, but at times even gets worse, will we draw near or draw back? And in our faithfulness, God will produce fruitfulness as we endure. I'd encourage you this week to wrestle with that a bit as you go through this book of Ruth with me, to reflect upon it. Maybe it begins, as it does certainly most of our hearts, mine included, to repent of the areas that we have fallen short, and then to open a dialogue with the Lord about how we might grow in investing in some aspect where we can with Him and opening that dialogue with those closest to us, to lean in more fully, to be stewards of the time and the talent and the treasure that God has entrusted to us, whether the mud hits the fan or whether the mud is settling, both for our soul's health as well as for the health of those around us and the health of those who would come after us. May it be all to, uh, to God's honor and glory through Jesus Christ our Lord.